For 15 years now, Locked Up Abroad, a television uh, series, has told stories of people being jailed while traveling, usually while smuggling drugs, but not always. Some episodes feature people who were kidnapped. At least one tells a story of a British man who was arrested and faced a 14-year prison sentence in the Philippines for the charge of adultery. Now, I've never been on an episode of Locked Up Abroad, but Jacob, Alex, and I have been to one of the prisons featured in a few episodes called Lurigancho in, in Peru. The internet tells me that the locals call it the house of the devil, and I can't say I'd like to return and see it again. Now, Joseph found himself imprisoned after being falsely accused by a lady who was trying to commit adultery with him, and when all was said and done, he would spend 13 years as both a slave and a prisoner. We don't know how long he was in Potiphar's house and how long he was in the jail, uh, but it would be 13 years total after being trafficked by his brothers. And we aren't sure how bad the jail was relatively. On the one hand, Joseph had a lot of agency in it, uh, and it was a political prison, which might lend itself to better accommodations. On the other hand, it was still an ancient prison, right? I mean, you don't want to be in a prison Uh, in 1800 B.C. Egypt. Joseph characterizes it in this passage as a pit and a dungeon. It's not where he wanted to be. At the same time, while he was there, he kept himself busy with ministry. Through his faithfulness, we are given a powerful example of what the master commanded his servants in the parable of the ten minas when he said to them, occupy till I come, or in a different translation, engage in business till I come back. And Joseph gives us a real living flesh and blood example of obeying that command. Do you feel like you're tied to your desk? You feel like you're in a dead-end job, you're a slave to your boss? Or, hey, if you're a little more cheery, are you hoping to minister to people around you at work or uh, at school? Are you excited to see the promises of God coming to fruition in your life? Either way, no matter where you're at on that spectrum, Joseph's experience has a lot to show us about being used by God and, uh, and having our faith developed in our circumstances. So let's begin in verse 1. After this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. So Joseph is 28 years old in this chapter, and he has been made the unofficial assistant warden of the prison, even though he is a prisoner himself. Uh, As he had done in Potiphar's house, he's doing all of the administrative work in the prison. And two new prisoners arrive one day, and they are members of Pharaoh's court, the cupbearer, who's also called the butler in some translations. And I'm going to call him the butler because it's easier. Plus, butler and baker go well together. And so, and then there's the chief baker. So you have the guy who was the cupbearer, but he was more than just a wine taster for Pharaoh. You know, a lot of times they would have a lot of influence. He was in charge of a lot of administrative things. Um, He would have Pharaoh's ear. It's a very important position. And the chief baker who was in charge of all the food that Pharaoh and the court would eat. We're not told what they are accused of, and we're not told if they did it or not. But the prison warden, who might be Potiphar himself, we saw last time, 
he assigns Joseph to them as a personal attendant. And so, not only is Joseph incarcerated, but now he's supposed to act like a servant while in prison. Uh, It doesn't feel very fair, uh, but that doesn't matter, does it? One translation puts it this way, though. He, the warden, assigned Joseph to them, and he ministered to them. That's the word that's being used by Moses in this passage. It's the same term that Moses will later use to speak of serving in the tabernacle. Exact same word uh, that he was using, speak of service in the tabernacle and what Joseph is doing for these two guys here. As Christians, uh, it's not that we don't care about our circumstances or we don't acknowledge that sometimes circumstances are bad. That's That's not it. But we're not to approach life or think of our lives through the lens of circumstances. Uh, most of you have had the experience of wearing 3D glasses of some kind or maybe looking through binoculars or looking through a camera lens. There's all sorts of different lenses you can look through. Um, those of us who are glasses wearers, there's a difference between wearing our glasses and not wearing our glasses in most cases. But imagine those 3D glasses, right? I always hated when, during the 3D f- craze in the movies, I always hated it because I was constantly just doing this, be like, what does it look like without the 3D glasses? And then I would like close one eye to look through the red and close the other eye to look through the blue, right? And just, I'd end up getting all queasy, right? Because I'm, I'm just messing with my vision a lot. And so when we're thinking about life and we're living life, we, we have thoughts about life. We have thoughts about what's going on in our lives, what's going on in the lives of the people around us. And the truth is that we put lenses on those thoughts the way that we put glasses on our regular vision. We think about things through a particular set of, of mental lenses. And, and one of the wonderful things that Christ has done for us is He says, hey, I've given you my mind, my heart, my perspective, not only on the big questions of right and wrong and the big questions of where you came from and where you're going, but just about life in general, how you're supposed to experience life and understand life, the Lord says, why don't you look through this, not through the lens of circumstance, uh, not through the lens that humanity or your culture around you gives you and says, this is the way you should look at things, but through God's lenses. Had Joseph looked, through his, looked at his life through the lens of circumstances, what result could there be but anger and bitterness and the death of his faith? I mean, really, If he was saying, what's going on in my circumstances, and and that's what's going to define my life and define my perspective and define what I think about God and my future and the people around me, man, there's not a lot of hope there. It's like when you look through a camera lens that's not on the camera. Have you ever done that before? Everything is upside down, right? Uh, Because the magic of lenses, I don't know. And so, but if if you pull the camera lens off and just look through it in isolation, everything's upside down. And so, had Joseph looked at his life through the lens of circumstances and the lens of how he felt, his feelings, everything would have been upside down, and the result would have been anger and bitterness. Instead, like Joseph, we can choose to see life the way God sees it, through His perspective, through His eyes and heart and mind that He gives us. We know from the Word of God that He has scattered us into a particular time and place on purpose for a number of reasons. One of them is so that we could grope for him, the Bible says. He says, I scatter people into the world so that they will grope for me. And he scatters us into a certain time and place so that we can be in relationship with him and so that we can be particularly used by him for his glory. 
and as participants in his incredible unfolding work to rescue the lost, the incredible work of his providence that is, that is accomplishing more, you know, super computations than any science fiction movie could ever, you know, a, a try to mimic or, or approach in theory, right? And, and so the Lord says, I want to do all this stuff through you, and, and if you look at life the way that I look at your life, it's completely different than if you look at life through the, just the lens of your circumstances, the lens of your feelings, the lens of your culture. Listen, Joseph wasn't happy about being in that jail. He wants out, and that's okay. But he was serious about opportunities to minister to people and to glorify God even in an Egyptian prison, even in terrible circumstances. He was like, okay, I'm going to minister to these people. Verse 5, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker who were confined in the prison, each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? Joseph's example here is remarkable. Uh, Remember, on the human level, Egyptians were his enemies, right? At best, they were in the category of other, that he and his family would otherwise try to avoid. These two men in particular represent the oppressive regime that was keeping Joseph in prison unjustly, right? But Joseph was a man with genuine faith, real faith, life-changing faith in his God, and that faith produced compassion in his heart. Real Christian faith always produces compassion in us. And so Joseph acted a lot like that little Hebrew girl later in the Old Testament who had been abducted and enslaved into uh, Naaman's house, Naaman, the, the Syrian general, right? He had come and probably killed her family, destroyed her city, took her as a little girl captive and made her a slave in his house, right? That's the worst set of circumstances imaginable. But when we, when we get a look into her mind, when we get a look into her faithful little heart, we see that she saw Naaman's leprosy. Naaman was a leper despite his strength and his prominence and his position. He was a leper and therefore doomed to die. And she saw his leprosy, and her response was not, not good. That guy has it coming. I hope it hurts all the way down to, to, to the grave, right? No, her response was, if only my master could see the man of God in Israel, and then he would be healed. That's compassion. That's incredible faith. That's the kind of change of of life and change of heart that only God can do, right? And so Joseph is kind of acting like that. These people who were his oppressors, these people who were other, these people who he, from a human perspective, had no business having uh, any kindness toward or friendship with or affinity for, he, he had compassion for them, and he sees the anguish on their faces one day, and he does not wait for them to ask him anything. He takes the initiative to reach out to them and see if he can provide some kind of relief for what's going on. There's not much he could do, but, you know, he's a a penniless, shackled prisoner in the dungeon uh, prison, and he says, but maybe there's something that I can do to help these guys. And because God was working in his life, he really could help, well, at least one of them. The butler and the baker were convinced that their dreams were not normal. It wasn't just a regular weird dream. I've had a lot of weird dreams in my life. Right after my stroke, I had just, just the craziest, just jumble of like stress dreams. It was hilarious and upsetting while they were happening, but like the next day, it was just crazy. It, it, that's not what was happening here. These guys were under a lot of stress, sure, but this was different. 
There was a weight and a prescience to the dreams that they couldn't shake. Now, Egyptians believed that dreams put a person in direct contact with the world of uh, where the dead dwelt and the gods dwelt. And so, they had a really, uh, they had a strong opinion about dreams, and they thought dreams were, were bringing you into this other world. Now, Joseph and his family also believed that s- some dreams, at least, could be sent from God. Joseph's own father had experienced that, and so had Abraham. And Joseph seems to have some well-established opinions about dreams, their importance and their interpretation, right? So dreams were pretty significant back then. What about our dreams? Does God still speak through dreams today? The Apostle Peter preached in the book of Acts that Joel's prophecy about dreams and visions still had application in the church age. But we shouldn't assume that every strange dream is a divine dream, right? Maybe it is. But the primary source of wisdom and prophecy given to us is the Word of God, is the Scripture on your phone or uh, in your Bible on your lap, right? The, the Word of God, that is our authority, that is the place from which we get truth, that is the revelation of God that He's given us, and within it, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. God says outright, if you lack wisdom, ask me for it and I'll give it to you, right? So we don't have to wait for strange dreams to give us some sort of revelation of of what God wants for us. At the same time, the Bible doesn't tell us that God will never speak to us through a dream in this dispensation. And so if God wants to speak through a dream to one of His people, it will be totally in line with Scripture because Scripture is His Word and our authority, and He will never, ever contradict it. Verse 8 said, We had dreams, they said to Joseph, but there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said to them, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the butler and the baker were convinced that these dreams meant something. There was a problem, though. The problem was that they had been taught that the understanding of dreams was a complex science that required special people, magicians, to give you the solution to the puzzle. Being in prison meant they had no access to those experts, and so they felt hopeless, right? This was a big part of their culture, and we see it also later in Babylon and the wise men, and hey, you should be interpreting this dream for me, Nebuchadnezzar said. And so these guys thought, okay, this is a serious dream. We've had contact with the divine. We don't know what it means, and now we'll never know what it means because we're just lowly prisoners in the prison here, and we don't have access to the guys who can give us the answer. Now, Joseph responds with this incredible culture-breaking moment here. It's really incredible what he says when we think about it. Uh, He says, just kind of casually, it seems, yeah, you don't need those guys. What was your dream? This is a big deal because there was a class of people whose whole training and expertise and life was dedicated to the interpretation of dreams. And everyone in their culture thought those were the only guys who can tell you the solution to your dream. But Joseph here, he's just matter of fact about it. And even though he's short, sort of a matter of fact, he's not rude, but he's just being matter of fact about things, even though it's a, a short statement he makes, there's a lot going on here for us in this example. First, he gives these guys the impression that God, the real God, is definitely willing to interact with them directly. He says, well, God gives interpretations to dreams. You, you don't need a middleman. Why not? You know, God wants to explain that to you. There were no hoops for them to jump through before God might give them wisdom. They didn't have to produce a copper coin 
and say, well, if you pay enough, then you'll, you'll be able to hear the wisdom of God. Or if you go to a certain place, you'll receive the wisdom of God. Or if you do a certain ritual, then maybe God will give you wisdom. Joseph was like, God wants to explain stuff to you. What, what's your dream? Really, really different than what these guys had learned growing up. Second, Joseph explained that their circumstances weren't a problem. Their thinking was, if we were in better shape, if we were in a better position, uh, you know, if we had access, then our Egyptian gods might be able to give us some insight through these other guys. But Joseph boldly says, listen, God's with me. He's here right now, and he's a helper. And you know what? He's willing to help even you. You don't believe in him. You don't worship him. You don't honor him. You don't know him, but he'll help you. That's a big deal. And third, Joseph gave them hope, but he made no specific promises. Did you notice that? He said, listen, interpretations belong to God. Why don't you tell me the dream, and let's, let's see what happens. He does not say, I'll definitely tell you what your dreams mean. He's honest, but he doesn't exaggerate beyond what he knows to be true. He doesn't make any uh, 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 declarations or assumptions about what he will be able to do on behalf of God. Does that make sense? He's, he's, he's clear. He's straightforward. Uh, he's matter-of-fact. He knows God is a helper, but he doesn't make any promises that he can't back up. And so this is just a great example for us as we represent a loving God to needy people. Uh, people are in need. People are in need of truth and direction and help. Uh, they are in need of, 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 of real truth and real understanding about life. And we have a God who is with us and who wants to reach out to those people, even though they don't know Him and they don't worship Him and they don't honor Him. God wants to reach out to them through us, but that doesn't mean that we're always just going to be able to snap our fingers and fix every problem in their life or give them every single answer that they want. But God wants to know them and reach out to them, and He wants to use us to connect them together with Him, right? Uh, not that we become their priests, but that we introduce them to God so that they can have a personal living relationship with the God who made them and loves them. There's also a great devotional reminder here. These guys were trying to figure out their lives, and they assumed that they needed the experts to guide them. And Joseph comes along and he says, no, you don't need an expert. What you need is the Lord, right? Interpretations belong to the Lord, he said. We're not against education, and we're not necessarily anti-experts, right? But let's ask this question. In this passage, Genesis 40, these sages, these magicians that the butler and the baker were so dependent on, these experts in dream science, did they actually know anything about dreams? Did they actually know anything about the future? Did they actually know anything about eternal matters or about the real living God? They didn't. We look back now and we say, that's silly that they had dream science. They really did. They had whole schools of dream science. And we look back on that and we say, that's silly because those guys didn't know anything that they claimed to know. And yet all of the people in Egypt were like, we have to get direction from our lives from these experts. We were told they were experts. Look at how much time they spent studying their field. And therefore, we're going to let those people take the helm of our lives and tell us where to go, what to do, how to do it, because they are the experts. That's the idea. 
And so we want to be really careful about which well of wisdom we drink from in life, right? The Egyptians would formally school their wise men in a place called the houses of life. That's what scholars tell us they were called. You would go and train in the houses of life, and then you would have the expertise and the authority to start telling people what their dreams meant. And it was all made up. And Joseph comes along and he says, guys, God knows the truth and he will help you and he wants to explain life to you directly. And the same is true today. So we're not against education. We're not against, uh, you know, studying. We're not against any of that. But we do want to be careful about the well of wisdom from which we're drinking as people. Because God says, hey, I've given you my word and within it you have everything that you need for life and for godliness. So if we ever find ourselves thinking, yeah, but God and His wisdom is not enough for this area of my life, therefore I have to go outside of the family of God to some God-hating pagan expert, and they will tell me the truth, we have to recalibrate our understanding about what truth is and where wisdom comes from. Verse 9 says, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, in my dream there was a vine in front of me. On the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is, is its, sorry, this is its interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. So Joseph's interpretation seems outright impossible, right? How could you go from butler to prisoner, from pit to palace in a space of three days? The butler's reputation is destroyed. Pharaoh not only doesn't trust him, he's furious with him. But Joseph says just with confidence and boldness and faith, this is what's going to happen is done. It's future history already delivered to us, right? And, and, and it's... He doesn't care that it seems impossible or it seems unlikely or that how could he know this? He just says it with boldness and faith and confidence because the Lord had given him that interpretation. Verse 14, but when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison for I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. Now, this is a helpful thing to see. Joseph is not trying to escape. I think that's a really important detail in his story. He never tried to escape Potiphar's house. He doesn't try to escape the prison. Uh, lots of times, you know, ancient times are just like today. You know, or we see in the, in the New Testament, right? Onesimus escaped from Philemon's house, and, and Paul's like, yeah, I'm sending him back to you. And so, Obviously, there were attempted, you know, prison breaks and slave breaks and things back in Egypt, just like there was. Joseph was completely innocent. He had been, you know, kidnapped and trafficked. If I was Joseph, I'd be trying to figure out how to escape. But even in the prison here, we see he's not tunneling under the ground. He's not digging through the wall. He's not doing anything like that, you know, but he does want out, and that's okay. We don't have to love suffering. It's not less spiritual for us to prefer blessing to difficulty. And so if you find yourself in a circumstance of suffering, feel free to pray for deliverance from trials and from your hurts. But throughout your time of struggle, 
We are all called to continue being people of faith and people of, of ministry, serving those around us, no matter the circumstances. And so the Lord says, hey, don't think it's strange when you face trials and troubles. He says, for sure, you're going to have suffering in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We're allowed to pray for deliverance. God is a deliverer. He loves to be our help and our refuge and our shelter. In the end, we will be delivered from every difficulty, every pain, every sorrow, every suffering. All of these things are true. In the midst of a particular suffering, maybe the Lord wants to deliver you out of it. Maybe He wants you to endure it. And so you can pray for deliverance. Paul did. He said, Lord, I don't want to be sick the way I'm sick anymore. Something happened in Paul's life where, you know, he was praying about that, and the Lord said, I want you to stop praying about it. And Paul was faithful to do that. But meanwhile, if, if you haven't been told to stop praying for deliverance, then keep praying for deliverance from illnesses or difficulties or hurts or struggles and things like that. But that does not give any of us the license to say, well, I'm going to try to accomplish my will to escape this suffering instead of waiting on the Lord, right? The Lord hasn't spoken to me or the Lord seems to have closed the doors that would get me out of this. Well, I'm going to tunnel through the wall and get myself out of it because I don't like the feeling anymore. That's what we're not supposed to do. We need to be like Joseph, who is not trying to escape while also excited to get out of there if he can. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. In the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. So in his dream, we see baskets of bread and baked goods. I found it interesting that an ancient Egyptian dictionary has been found that lists 38 kinds of cake and 57 varieties of bread. Big baking culture, right? We're thinking about hieroglyphics and the sphinx and the weird cat things that they worshiped, but they're baking like crazy over there. As long as Joseph was handing out fortune cookies with winning lottery numbers, the baker wanted to get in on this too. He was like a hot table. He was like, hey, hey, I also had a dream. What do you got for me? He knew there were parallels between the two dreams that they had had. And on top of that, in the Egyptian culture, birds functioned as symbols of royalty, the king in particular. And so he's like, okay, this sounds great for me as well. What seemed like a very similar dream did have a few very key differences. For example, the butler had been very active in his dream. He's taking the grapes, he's squeezing them, he's placing the cup in Pharaoh's hand, all of that kind of motion that we saw, activity. Whereas the baker is motionless. Nahum Sarna points out that in the dream, the baker has neither the strength nor the presence of mind to drive the birds away, an ominous detail. Yeah, no kidding. Verse 18, this is its interpretation, Joseph replied, the three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. So the baker would be beheaded and then impaled on a stick. The goal of such a gruesome execution would be to deny the victim any rest in the afterlife. Now, Joseph, for his part, still gives us a good example here. He doesn't sugarcoat bad news, right? As Christians delivering the gospel, here's the devotional connection. It's vital that we do not neglect giving the whole message, which includes 
the truth about sin and guilt and judgment and hell, right? Those are truths that people need to know about so that they can receive the good news about Jesus Christ who will save them from certain doom if they will turn to Him. You know, if a fireman comes to your house and you don't know that it's on fire and he says, will you come with me? You'd be like, I'm good. You know, well, why, why do I need to come with you? But if he said, well, come with me because the whole backside of your house that you don't see is completely on fire, that's a big difference, right? And so we don't want to neglect giving the bad news part of the good news. It's all good news because God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But in order for that to happen, people have to understand the repentance part and the fact that they have offended God and that they have sinned against God and that sin gives wages and the wages of sin is death and that there's only one way for people to be saved and that's through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we want to be like Joseph in that sense. We're not given the reactions of the butler or the baker. Did they believe? I imagine the next three days were very awkward around the prison. Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had explained to them. Ron Swanson once said that birthdays were invented by Hallmark to sell cards. He's wrong about this particular issue. The world's oldest invite was discovered in England back in 1973. It's an invitation to a birthday party written at about 100 A.D. There's a birthday party that was going to be held on September the 11th, and it's a lady sending a birthday invitation to her sister. Pretty fun. Here in Genesis 40, don't think of balloons and bounce houses for this birthday party. This was a drinking party, a drinking bout, the language tells us. Maybe that's why the butler would be so quick to forget about Joseph. Joseph's prophecies came true. He did really have the presence of God with him. He had a connection to heaven's wisdom. He had a connection to God's calendar. Of course, Joseph would then remember his own pair of dreams that had besieged his sleep so many years ago. If God was speaking and working and accomplishing things through the dreams of a couple of pagans outside the family of faith, what great confidence Joseph would have had, what great expectation that his deliverance would be swift in coming. Joseph's heart must have swollen with excitement and anticipation and hope in a way that he hadn't felt for over a decade. And then verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, he forgot him. Can you imagine the day after the butler's release there at the prison, how Joseph would have waited for the sound of a chariot arriving, announcing his instant release, how he and the captain of the guards would have spoken about all that had happened, how he would have told him about the own dreams that he had and what that might mean for his future, how they would have marveled at the way that the real God of heaven and earth, God himself, was watching out for Joseph, speaking for Joseph, using Joseph to accomplish the, the telling of the future. But nobody came that day. Okay, maybe tomorrow. After all, lots going on with the party and the executions and everything. They're probably sleeping it off anyway. Maybe the next day. But then another day came and went, and then a week, and then a month. Joseph would remain a prisoner for two more years. Now, he has been exemplary for us, and I have no intention of criticizing any of his choices or behavior. But the end of the story gives us a little devotional reminder for us in the here and now. 
Back in verse 14, he pressed the butler firmly, and I think understandably. I have no criticism for this. But he, he said to the butler, remember me, mention me, get me out. In fact, he asked the butler to boast about him to Pharaoh. He said, show me kindness. That word there is that Hebrew word we've been talking about in these passages recently, hesed. He says, please show me hesed. It's a big ask. But the butler had no hesed to give him, right? He had no hesed for, for Joseph. Joseph's plea was reasonable and understandable, right? Again, it's not a criticism of him. I just, we just want to turn this in on ourselves and apply some things to ourselves. For us, the reminder is that our hope, our hesed, the hesed we need for our futures comes from the Lord, not from man. David preached to himself in Psalm 62, rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. It is the Lord who is the one who will save us from the pits of danger and discouragement and despair and difficulty. I'm sure Joseph spent lots of time in prayer asking for deliverance, and deliverance was coming. It was just a few years away. But our hope comes from the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. And, and man, it seems like the Lord wants us to, to, to grab hold of that tonight based off of the verses that were shared during our prayer time. And so for us, it's just a reminder. The Lord's our hope. He is our Hesed Redeemer. He is coming for us. Wait on Him. Now, as we close, I don't want to miss the opportunity to point out that this chapter in Joseph's life is not just an example of how we can faithfully minister, even in difficulty. It's also a really lovely portrait of God's salvation. It's a lovely portrait of what the gospel is. What do we see here? Two men thrown into prison. We don't know what they've done, but they have offended their king, right? So we don't know what the particulars are, but we're told they offended their king. They had. The word used there is the word used for sin. They sinned against their king. They had no hope. But then God sent them an innocent helper, one who was willing to serve them and identify with them and reach out to them. They were both given a message from heaven, one that could not be undone or overcome. And in the end, both men were raised up, one to life, the other to death. And the one who lived was told to remember the one who had helped him, right? Those are the broad strokes. And those broad strokes are the same for us in the gospel today. We offended God. We sinned against the king. Maybe in small ways, maybe in great ways, maybe not as bad as the baker beside us, maybe worse than the butler beside us, but we've offended him, and he is right to condemn us. That is within his power, within his right, but by his grace, he sent his innocent son to come and identify with us and give us heaven's message to come down into the pit of sin with us so that he could reach out to us with kindness and with compassion and now we, by faith, can choose whether we will believe and receive salvation or if we will not take what God has provided. If you believe, you will be raised up not only to life, not only out of the pit, but to glory and to a position of honor where you will rule alongside the King of Kings, where you will be like a cupbearer in his house. If you will not believe, you too will be raised up in the last day to face the great white throne judgment from which there is no escape, you will be condemned for all eternity, never to rest as you enter uh, the lake of fire and endure the punishment of hell. We who believe are called to remember our Lord, to remember His Word, and to boast of Him to anyone who will listen. 
As we live out our faith, we're reminded that our God is faithful. He is our Hesed redeemer. He is our shield. He is our glory. He is the lifter of our heads. Salvation and blessing belong to our Lord. May his blessing be on all his people.